Hey there. It's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, June 27. We have a show for you tonight. Uh, Janine Moloff is going to be with us talking about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, otherwise known as the big privatization giveaway. Uh, I've been following this story with David Dayan uh, online. Uh, always check out his work when it comes to these kinds of things. He's awesome. Janine's going to bring some more insight to that in just a bit. I also have Isha Krishnaswarmi to discuss a crazy ass bunch of bills that have passed in Florida, um, sponsored by Victims of Communism. And uh, spoiler alert, not one Democrat voted against them. So, uh, and we're all watching what's going on with uh, the recovery portion of uh, what's going on in Surfside and Miami Beach with the collapsed Champlain Towers uh, South Condo. Uh, Of course, this, this... tragedy happened earlier this week as of today there's still 156 people unaccounted for and the recovery is going really really slow Uh, governor Ron DeSantis delayed getting FEMA out there for a full 24 hours a full day so I'm sure that that's impacted things Um, and we've got some pretty good uh, information and reporting coming out of the Miami Herald that there was a major error flagged in 2018 uh, in an inspection report of the collapsed building. And it seems like, according to this uh, report, that uh, there was a drainage problem dating back to the building's origin where lack of proper drainage on the pool deck had caused major structural damage. So, listen... This this is unsurprising for Florida. Um, we th- there's barely any daylight between organized crime and our governance system, so it should surprise no one that uh, engineering reports flagging major problems with buildings go uh, unnoticed. Uh, they're ignored. They're buried, um, and you're seeing the result of that right now in. Miami Beach Uh, recovery is going super slow it's absolutely horrifying and there's a lot of questions as to whether uh, sea level rise had anything to do with this we don't know yet Uh, so there's we just have to wait and see along with everybody else and uh, hopefully nothing else collapses in the in the interim now this this reminds me of when Back in the 80s, uh, it was on the day that Ronald Reagan was shot. A Similarly, a condo collapsed in Cocoa Beach. Um, I lived further south in uh, South Patrick Shores, which is between Cocoa Beach and Satellite Beach. And uh, we had relatives coming down A1A that day, and they got caught in a four or five hour backup on on a1a uh so that's seared into my head you know when you've got the president being shot and a condo collapsing and uh and uh you know we were all very worried about you know our 
relatives who were not showing up as we had expected them to. Uh, back before there was cell phones, no one could call us and you know tell us that they were in traffic. We just had to imagine that they were delayed somehow. So this is reminding me of, of that a lot. Um, Graham Elwood just did a spot on his show about sea level rise in the Keys, in the Florida Keys, and doing some reporting on reporting that is saying that there are in the, on the island of Marathon, they are just accepting the loss of of property, that uh, some houses are not going to be able to be saved because the uh, sea level rise is happening so fast and there's it doesn't look like it's going to be turned back. So people in um, Monroe County down there are saying, you know, there's nothing we can do. And we're just going to have to accept that property loss. Um, that is going to happen all around Florida. So much of Florida is barrier islands. Where I grew up in uh, Satellite Beach, that is a barrier island. And you can go on, uh, NOAA actually has a website where you can check this out. You can see where sea level rise, given one foot and two foot and so on and so forth, you can see how that's going to impact uh, all of the different areas across the country. Now, it's terrible in Florida. Right now, we've got king tides that are uh, flooding out um, downtown Miami and uh, causing all kinds of problems in Sarasota. This has been going on for a while. But think about places like uh, northeastern cities where there is all kinds of infrastructure that's built up right at the water's edge, like in New York City or uh, uh, Atlantic Beach, these, these kinds of places the, where there is a, a lot more density. They're, they're more dense than a lot of the places around Florida, that, except for Miami. Miami is very dense. Uh, we're going to be seeing this everywhere all at once as sea level continues to rise. So another story today that uh, an island in the Solomon Islands has official, officially disappeared from sea level rise. And they're calling it the very first island to disappear from sea level rise. So I want I want everyone to kind of think of this as they're listening to Janine's piece on the infrastructure bill and how Joe Manchin is um, telling people that they have to choose between uh, the portions of the bill that have to do with climate change and the portions of the bill that have to do with that has to do with infrastructure that helps people so you know people climate you know at the end of the day it's all people who are impacted by climate change yeah so joe manchin is is absolute garbage and the west virginia uh democratic party is as corrupt as they are anywhere else it's just um gobsmacking status quo did a report this week on the corruption in the west virginia democratic party and uh you know folks you need to keep an eye on paula jean uh paula jean swernigan 
ran for Senate in West Virginia, got absolutely no help from the party. Uh, She had a real shot at it. And, you know, it seems to me like they did everything they possibly could to keep her out of the race, to keep her, you know, from from being. This is what the party does. And we're going to, in a second, we're going to talk about more of some of the incredibly offensive things that that the party has been engaged. But first, I want to take a moment uh, of remembrance for uh, Mike Gravel. Mike Gravel, just one of the most amazing members of Congress we've ever had, passed away this morning at his home in California with his family around him, uh, by all accounts, uh, uh, it, it, everything was as it should be, and um, but everyone is deeply saddened. Mike Ravel was, uh, of course, the member of Congress who was able to get the Pentagon Papers read into the congressional record and therefore released to the public. Now, there is a very important lesson in and for everyone who is very fond of you know saying how much uh how how little power that uh lawmakers have you know from the president down to senators to uh, uh, representatives really when democrats are in power they they have absolutely no power blah 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 um Mike Ravel is one of the few lawmakers who knew how to um, find creative ways to use power. And this is what he did uh, when the Pentagon Papers became available and people wanted to get. He was not a super powerful member of Congress. He didn't chair any of the big, you know, committees. He didn't have, you know, a, a, much money a, a behind him. As a two-term senator from Alaska, he represented one of the um, most impoverished uh, uh, and helped the Native population uh, escape uh, grinding poverty. But 50 years ago on Tuesday, all right, Gravel was the only senator who had accepted the classified Pentagon Papers, an internal government study of the Vietnam War, from whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg and read them during an emotional hearing that Gravel convened on Capitol Now, he did this... uh, while completely in fear for his career and, and and afraid that he was he was only in his second year as being elected senator uh, when he when he did this so he was a a a very young senator he didn't have a lot of power he uh he was almost certain he was either going to be um, expelled or censured by the Senate. Uh, Arrest is definitely a possibility. And he had the 7,000 page study that needed to get into the congressional record. So there's the problem. How do you get this into the, the congressional record? His aides handed out photocopies of the documents to reporters at a time when publication of the papers stopped after 
uh, Nixon's Justice Department had slapped injunctions on several newspapers. The newspapers sued, and just hours after Gravel had finished reading from the papers at his hearing, which was part of his filibuster to end the military draft, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three against the government for imposing prior restraint or censorship on the press in violation of the First Amendment. Now, Gravel tried to read the Pentagon Papers into the, uh, um, into the record on the floor of the Senate on the night of June 29, 1971, but was thwarted when no quorum could be formed. But instead of giving up, you know, he, he searched for an answer. He looked for a solution to the problem. This is really one of the best stories ever in politics, but he was a, he, he did chair a committee, so he did have a little bit of power, but the committee that he, he chaired was the building buildings and grounds subcommittee. All right. So that was the lever that he used. He convened the buildings and grounds subcommittee and uh, got New York Congressman John G. Dow to, to testify that the war had soaked up funding for public buildings, thus making discussion of the war relevant to the committee. Then he began reading from the papers with the press in attendance, omitting the sub- supporting documents that he felt might compromise national security and declaring, quote, it is my constitutional obligation to protect the security of the people by fostering the free flow of information absolutely essential to their democratic decision making. He read until 1 a.m. until with tears and sobs, He said that he could no longer physically continue. Uh, The previous three nights of sleeplessness and fear about the future of having uh, were were taking their toll. Gravel ended the session by, with no other senators present, establishing unanimous consent to insert 4,100 pages of the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record of his subcommittee. Now, that's how you do it. He solved the problem. Now, I am bringing this up because, you know, Gravel died today at the age of 91, and he is amazing, and he he, uh, uh, was an amazing presence in the 2020 election, and the Gravel teens uh, were definitely a a phenomenon, and uh, seemed to... Uh, coalesce with what Bernie was doing and, you know, just seemed to be right there with the zeitgeist. So uh, Mike Gravel, you know, just an amazing character, very sad uh, to hear of his passing today. And I would like to play something really quick just to remind folks of that amazing energy that The first thing I'm going to play is an archive uh, piece of audio um, from around the time that the Pentagon Papers were released. East Asia policy. I was frightened to death over releasing the Pentagon Papers. I had no idea whether I was going to prison. All I could think of was 
My country is killing people. We're maiming Americans, and this is terrible. And so I, I was overcome with emotion, not, not patriotism, just emotion of something you love dearly that has gone astray. He continued until exhaustion and emotion overcame him after one o'clock this morning. I collected myself, and I asked, now, Keep in mind, I'm the only one on the committee. I ask unanimous consent to put all of these papers into the record, and I've got the gavel, and I slam it, and I say, hearing no objection, so ordered, that's it. Papers are out. They're in the... Just remarkable. We need more people like Mike Gravel in uh, Congress. Here is another clip. This is from when uh, Gravel was uh, running for president in 2008. It's like going into the Senate. You know, the first time you get there, you're all excited. My God, how did I ever get here? Then about six months later, you say, how the hell did the rest of them get here? (laughs) And and I got to tell you, after standing up with them, some of these people frightened me. They frightened me. When, When you have mainline candidates that turn around and say that there's nothing off the table with respect to Iran, that's code for using nukes, nuclear devices. I got to tell you, I'm president of the United States. There will be no preemptive wars with nuclear devices. To my mind, it's immoral, and it's been immoral for the last 50 years as part of American foreign policy. Let's use a little. 2008. Um, Nobody was talking about nuclear weapons or the arms race or military spending in 2008. Uh, The last time that we have had a conversation about that was during the Clinton administration when there was a supposed peace dividend uh, because we weren't in any wars. Uh, And this was after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, you know, so so people were expecting to move some of that money out of the military and back into supporting uh, actual people who needed help. That's when we thought universal health care was going to happen. That was that was uh, the first real shot that we had at single payer health care. And, you know, instead we got Hillary Clinton uh, going behind everyone's back, making sure that nothing would happen. Um, Mike Ravel, though, calls everyone out on stage in 2008 with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama standing right there. And he was talking about them. You know, he was talking about the hawks who, you know, posture with this, nothing is off the table. And what that is, he's absolutely right. What that is, is uh, they're saying that they are going to use whatever means necessary to put down, I don't know, Iran at the time. I don't, I don't even know, you know, in 2008, who was, who was actually like, literally a threat um i i don't think you can make a credible case that that any country in the world is a legitimate threat to the united states not to the point where uh nuclear weapons are on the table especially at a time when uh uh threats have come from um you know, people hijacking planes and uh, these these kind of low tech guerrilla tactics. Uh, nuclear arms have absolutely no place in the discussion. And of course, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about our, our biological weapons program, uh, which also needs to be reeled in. And Mike Ravel was the only person. He was absolutely fearless. So um, here, this continues. 
Who on this stage exactly tonight uh, uh, worries you uh, so much? Well, I would say the top tier ones. The top tier ones. They made statements. Oh, Joe, I'll include you too. You have a certain arrogance. You want to you tell the Iraqis how to run their country. I got to tell you, we should just play get out. Just play get out. It's their country. They're asking us to leave, and we insist on staying there. And Now, when he points in this clip and he says joe he's talking about joe biden it was joe biden barack obama and hillary clinton these were the three that he was talking to and i have to say that with uh you know 12 years um since and of course he was treated like a an outsider and like a crazy person for calling people out like that, but it was a hundred percent necessary. And I'm so glad that he did. Thank you for being a fighter and uh, standing up for, uh, for the people and for peace and for all the things that we hold dear. And also thank you for, um, being very clear that this isn't about patriotism, that this is about uh, a love of humanity, um, just an amazing humanizing force. Okay, guys, we will be right back with uh, a little bit on uh, some really bad lawmaking in Florida. So this week, uh, there was a uh, a big, a big move. Governor Ron DeSantis signs Victims of Communism Education Bill. This will go into effect on July 1 of this year. The bill requires that all Florida schools teach their students about the crimes of communist regimes. The legislation, which was championed by the Victims of Communism Memorial Fund, also known as VOC, um, passed in the Florida House of Representatives on April 2 and in the Florida Senate on April 27. It requires schools to include in their curriculum a comparison discussion of the political ideologies of communism and totalitarianism with the principles of freedom and democracy essential to the founding principles of the United States. Okay, that is uh, from reporting on it, but let's let's actually have a look at the bill. Now, there, there, there was actually like a couple bills. There was the, uh, there's the educational one, and there's also a uh, Victims of Communism Day, which will from now forward be on November 7 of every year. So November 7, when people are voting, um, and also just a few days before uh, the anniversary of Kristallnacht, uh, we will be, uh, the, the Victims of Communism, which are Nazis, uh, the, the, uh, they will be remembered here in Florida. So um, I'm hoping that that's going to spark more discussion about just the totality of uh, political life in uh, uh, high schools. But I'm going to read from the part of it. This is section four. Towards the end, uh, they are looking for 
curriculum to be created that provides, quote, an understanding of the civic-minded expectations developed by the State Board of Education of an upright and desirable citizenry that recognizes and accepts responsibility for preserving and defending the blessings of liberty inherited from prior generations and secured by the United States. So who is the victims of communism memorial fund? What are these people about? Uh, These guys have been around since 1992. They're part of another larger, older group of people called the World Anti-Communist League that was also uh, associated with the World League for Freedom and Democracy. Uh, These were founded in 1966, Uh, described by former member Jeffrey Stewart Smith as, quote, largely a collection of Nazis, fascists, anti-Semites, sellers of forgeries, vicious racialists, and corrupt self-seekers. In addition, a remarkably high percentage of members were connected to international drug smuggling. These are the people who are writing Uh, legislation that is now signed into law in the state of Florida. And here's the kicker, guys. Not one Democrat voted against this. These bills were passed uh, with no nays. Zero. Goose egg. Nays. No nays. Every single uh, Democrat in the Florida legislature voted for this shit. And uh, my husband tells me he reached out to a certain uh, member of the state legislature who's from Orlando um, and, you know, held up by a lot of people to be the next AOC. And I think she's proving herself in that regard because her response to a question as to why did you vote for this? She said, well, I couldn't. I, I, like, I just couldn't. Like, like, like what this 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 band of fascists, anti-Semites, Nazis, and uh, people connected to international drug smuggling, like like they were too too powerful to go up against. Is that it? You know, you couldn't make a, any kind of um, uh, case against these people. So let's see what Isha Krishnaswamy has to say about all of this. Most Americans do not have enough background ma- background knowledge to understand how horrific this is. But one of the founders, sorry. So the way Hitler worked was that um, he he worked a lot. Like uh, you're gonna see a lot of this will be familiar. So what he did was um, he like invade an area, but. Technically, the German Nazis would not be there. He'd say, oh, like, we're just giving these people their autonomy back and put in, like, a local puppet government. Well, um, he, was a, he was a Ukrainian nationalist Nazi. Who These are, these are the same people that no, 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 we these are... These are worse than the Nazis because I have, in my Twitter, I have actually uh, compiled over 100 instances of where mocked officers complaining to their superiors that these Ukrainian fascists 
have been a little too cruel and are a little too happy to murder too many people. And uh, so if you are getting Nazis in the Wehrmacht to complain about your cruelty, there must be something. Just imagine how bad it was. Right. And we are we are getting back in bed with these guys uh, no, right no, we've now. We've been in bed with them since 1944. Mm-hmm. Uh, 45, sorry. Right. The point I'm trying to get to, though, is that the point I'm trying to get to, though, is that we are in the midst of a a a hot war in the Donbass region. Oh, my God. Let me show you the latest clip that somebody sent me from that Donbass region where this I cannot figure out whether it's official militia, but this is what they're chanting. They're chanting Muscovites, Muscovites on the... By the way, I'm just going to send this to you so you can play this, but you probably need to get some of these voiceover. But they're chanting Muscovites, Muscovites on the knife, on the knife. Daddy Bandera is going to come and free Ukraine and give us all bacon and bread. Uh, By the way, Muscovite is a common uh, flur against Jews. Um, Bacon is obvious. (laughs) Yeah. So that was today. So, uh, so, so this group, Victims of Communism, this comes out of uh, Reagan administration era uh, kind of thinking. It yeah. was founded in 1994. Zbigniew Brzezinski. No, 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 hold on. That's the one that, that, that was the, the one before that was the World Anti-Communist League. And that was also funded by actual Nazis like Reinhard Galen. And and he was the uh, leader of the Eastern Campaign. And the Eastern Campaign, if you want to learn more about it, read the book, Death by, no, no, Holocaust by Bullets. They buried babies alive. 27 million people were killed. 80% of the entire battle was fought on that side. Uh, and the reason why is because these people, and if you don't believe me, listen to Hitler's speech during the beer hall push, he literally says that, um, that. And so, so yeah, they are waging a war against these people for simply choosing not to be slaves. And the and so maybe Americans are familiar with the Contras. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at what the Contras were doing and what the Nazis were doing on the East, their methods are eerily, eerily familiar, similar, and it's not a coincidence. Well, and uh, so the World Anti-Communist League, or WACL, uh, th- that was founded in 1966. They were in bed with the with the uh, John Birch Society and the Moonies and all yeah, kinds of crazy ultra-right and authoritarian organizations throughout no, 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 the no, no, world. No, it's worse than that. These were worse. These were not like these were people who were in the Eastern campaign who were like murdering babies mm-hmm. uh, uh, by like bayonetting them. And um, uh, uh, they, uh, and then the U S rescues them. So these were the same people who between 1941 through 1944 decided to literally exterminate like you even there's a massacre called Babi Yar. So many people were killed that the water in the drink, the the blood seeped through the water table. And so if you were to turn on the faucet, it, 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 uh, it poured blood and not water. 
So what I want, what I would like people to kind of reflect on is the degree to which these, uh, these really horrific Nazi organizations have been dug in to uh, the, the fabric of American culture since at least mid-century and probably a little bit before. And so this, what we're okay. seeing with this new law is, wait, is wait, a resurgence uh, of this same tendency. Yeah. Okay. So what you guys need to understand is that there were uh, at least 18 million uh, soldiers in the Wehrmacht alone. And uh, if you add up all the collaborators, like the French Anti-Bolshevik League, the Romanian Iron Guard, uh, the Hungarian people, the Hungarian gov- official government, the Romanian official government, uh, Italy, uh, every single country in the world has it had its own fascist collaborators without exception. Um, that number adds up to over 20 million who were willing to just like exterminate entire villages and then drink the next day and party over this and have sadistic games. And so these are the people that America decided to align with because they wanted to protect their access to markets against the threat. Like this is in the state department's memo. Um, uh, the Eisenhower administration literally called Cuba a threat of a good example. So a threat of a good example is poor people collectively arranging their own life in a way that they sought justice so that everyone was better off. And this is not up for debate. The life expectancy in Tsarist Russia was 32. Uh, in fact, when people say communism doesn't work, it's the opposite. Communism is, has worked so well that you can't even imagine how bad it used to be before communism. So well, in Tibet, the life expectancy was 36. Um, and people would, it was like the Wahhabis in Saudi Arabia. In Cuba, I have videos of 10 year olds being executed for setting fire to cornfields. So, um, and then with Cuba, they conquered illiterate. Oh, with the Sandinistas. The um, Somoza regime was in power for seven, for over 40 years. The literacy rate was at 30% and kids were working in sweatshops. The Sandinistas came into power. Five months later, the literacy was just poof, gone. And kids were in school and not in factories. And they were having dinner. And well, and hungry. I think that, that that speaks exactly to why uh, groups such as this nefarious victims of communism and you know who have been in bed with the wackle the world anti-communist league that is why they have them in bed i would call them the perpetrators of genocide because that's see yaroslav setsko he okay he was uh he was also one of the founding members um and then we have members of the romanian iron guard who were so disgusting that they hung children from meat hooks these people were flown in and hired by America, and they are inside America in order to give you anti-communist propaganda paid for by our government because poor people decided to have. 
Well, and they're they're having to do this. They're they're having to do this propaganda in in Florida schools because you know right now we are seeing a huge trend, especially amongst young people, uh, you know, who are having to take out, uh, having to go into peonage to afford to go to college. You know, more yeah. and more people are Does are starting to question. Kind of sound like Zaris Russia. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's like familiar, right? It sounds very Just familiar. It's a different structure, but it's the same thing. You give labor in exchange for basic necessities. Oh, and then you're going to die before you get to pay off the loan. It's the same structure. We're, of course, we're not, a, we're not, many of us are, are starving, but many of us are not. But it's. So do you think, I, I, do you think that there is a way that a law like this could backfire and, uh, you, you know, you start teaching, you, you start getting young people to uh, examine these kinds <laughs> of issues and they're like, hey, man, you guys are just full of it, right? Okay. Well, uh, yes, because, you know, you'll see thousands of movies about the Nazis. Why don't you see a single, if the Bolsheviks were such bad people, why don't you see a single movie about them? Because they know the more you learn, the more right the Bolsheviks are going to look. And that's not by accident. Remember, the purpose of a state is to oppress one class over another. Most of us do not get stocks from our daddy and we don't get inheritance from our grandfather. So we have to labor. So from our point of view, the Bolsheviks are going to look correct 110% of the time, while the U.S. government, who's opposing it, looks correct negative 10% of the time. And so that's why they would rather just uh, create this, like, have you get triggered by the word communism and then not actually tell you the truth, keep it vague, a vague monster from implications, and yeah, so it's net. The more you learn, um, like truth has somebody, jo- Michael Parenti says reality has a Marxist bent. Me and my husband talk about this a lot because uh, we have dogs and we're like, you know, dogs are pack animals and and they survive to the degree exactly to the degree to which that they cooperate. And, and, and this is something that I think is, is in human nature. So like in philosophy, you always ask about, you know, like, what is human nature? You know, what is our natural propensity? And two things that I think have always been in human nature is cooperation and labor. Like we don't, we don't have a, a natural, we don't naturally gravitate to doing nothing. We naturally gravitate towards working together and getting stuff done. Yeah, um, that is also true. On top of it, we are wired filled with empathy. Yes. So um, when you look at it's like hard not to break down in tears when you look at the atrocities the Nazis did, because that is horrific, because it goes against our natural empathy uh, thing. So they are trying to. So the first thing they'll have to do is by the way, um, who's going to have, if you ever, okay, the first thing they're going to be like, when I was in high school, in Florida schools, uh, we didn't spend 
hardly any time on World War II. And I always thought that that was by design. So it wasn't until I went it to is. Tennessee to a to a, a fancy academic school that 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 I learned about World War II. I'm I'm wondering if they start teaching this and it, like like they like the law says that they have to, and people start learning, is you know, there who a actually. Syllabus? It's actually funny. Is there a sample syllabus? No, there's not. Uh, there's okay. There's a provision to approve curriculum, but in that curriculum, at some point, they're going to have to talk about who actually. That's going to I, conflict yeah. pretty radically with with this whole, you know, uh, uh, anti-communist rah rah uh, oh, bullshit sure. they're putting but, out. But uh, like, this is what you'll also notice of learning about history. So in America, uh, the propaganda was like, oh, my God, we have to go to Vietnam to stop the Russian influence. Oh, my God, we have to go to some other country to stop the Russian influence. Um, where were the Russians? Were they, did we, did, was there a single Russian in Vietnam? No, because when you're poor and oppressed, the ideology that says, yo, you know that, that jackass who's been like uh, enslaving you and then raping your wife uh, or, or like prima nocta? Let's get rid of him and just take over the farm. That's a very popular ideology. So, and they also know that if you are oppressed enough, you're not going to believe American lies. So they don't even try in Vietnam or Chile. Today is Salvador Allende's birthday. So uh, in Chile, for example, in these third world countries, they don't even try. But you know what they do give? They give these monsters every weapon on earth to basically kill everything that moves or throw people from helicopters. So their only strategy is murdering a lot of brown people in the third world country, and they want to get you to do it. And so that's where all the propaganda comes from. So uh, what you'll realize is that communist propaganda, when you examine it really closely, I am trying to look at a single instance. I read almost every... Oh, I haven't, but I've read a significant portion of Lenin's collected works. And um, I have yet to find a single instance where he lied to me. But there's a logical reason why Lenin won't lie to me, because who is more likely to lie to you? This man who is was loved Russia, who was kicked out of Russia and lived in exile in like a little corner apartment, like by himself, like for 20 years and who own, whose only thought was freeing Russia from the evil from the czar or these absolute monsters that profit from slave labor and that to me if there's any doubt of, of this just do you think you should trust the same people who lied to you about the Iraq war the gulf of tonkin massacre syria libya like when have they not lied so that's another thing is that um yeah um so the yeah that's the first thing is they're trying to poison the well and then make you freak out and not logically read a thing because it's not hidden when you're in power like you're in america like america's in power everything you do is legal because that's how the way power works so the u.s government doesn't really hide the most horrific things like you know about the bombs the white phosphorus the whatever else they do in the middle east and you know because they are in power and they get to dictate all of international law and who's going to hold them to count? Nobody. So um, 
So what you'll realize is that nothing is hidden and everything is out in the open. What would you suggest as an alternative here? Now, let's let's say um, I've I've got Speak the truth, th- th- the truth. Exactly. Um, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Curriculum curriculum that I would want my high school kids to learn that portrays the truth to counter what they're going to be taught in school. Start with Lennon's colors. Uh, I would say, like, for me, the reason why I became a Lennon fan was, I think I said this, but there was, yeah, I was used to most European, everyone in America and everyone in England, like most white people do not think of Indians as fully human. We're brown, too brown, just not human, half human. In 1912, there was a British judge who raped this eight-year-old Indian girl and killed her. Lenin created such a ruckus that the British authorities had to recall this judge. And he knew that girl's name. Her name was Aina. He cared enough to like go through these like obscure papers and correspondences he wrote to like Indians to get their point of view. And he treated us as fully human. And then in 1914, in imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, he wrote that India is right to wage any war against British colonialism in any way they wanted to because it's the British that were occupying our land. So, um, like I said, it's kind of hard for you guys to believe somebody being that good. But what you have to understand is you can't do the great man theory. So, um, why was, why is Lenin so, so it's not because they are better people or anything like that, but because of the way the power structure works, when you're taking on power, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of people get sifted through. So, um, for example, Bernie Sanders, he's like, he's nearly perfect. Do you think Hillary Clinton did not try to find any single thing she could in the, op- the opposite research and then she came back empty? Right. And wasn't it Peter Dow that actually spilled the, the whole beans on that, that he had the, mm, the, the whole yeah. oppo folder and really all they had was that uh, he had gone to Russia and uh, sung uh, and, and drank with foreigners. And that's right. not that's actually a good thing. <laughs> like yeah. hanging out, uh, being friends with foreigners is not like something you can do much say much about and wanting world peace. He went there to negotiate a peace agreement, like wanting world. He went there on a denuclearization mission so he right. went there to negotiate with foreigners about world peace like there's no what are you gonna say about that right that's that um that part of, of history in the in the 80s especially in the late 80s there were uh sister city agreements where yeah uh you know people did uh, exchanges cultural exchanges with, with russia a theater group that i worked with in east and tennessee in china, china a, a theater group i worked with in east tennessee went over to russia and toured a, a play called echoes and postcards for years and then they brought a, a theater troupe over here from there and they did their original piece uh, you know all over the united states you know this is like original theater they weren't like going and doing carousel or something um so but yeah this this was common back then and i think 
once we get back in the mind of what it was like in the late 80s when, you know, we were scared to death that Reagan was going to uh, start a nuclear war and kill everybody. By the way, the reason why we are not all annihilated because Reagan accidentally sent a signal to Russia saying he was nuking them is because of this one Russian man, Stanislav Petrov, we should all thank him for our lives. And yeah. he's a communist. <laughs> he and, and and how ironic is it that a supposed, you know, like like communist, you know, like like these these victims of communism, people want you to think that com- communists are automatons or whatever. This guy, okay. like like said, he, he looked at the at what was going on, and he he made a decision on his own that said, no, this doesn't make any sense, and I'm not going to be the person to hit the and button. He sh- Shot down that fake missile too, so to stop it from like, yeah, yeah. So, so, so to we me, all owe him our lives. Yeah, we totally owe him our lives. We owe him the planet, and yeah. it, it was thank only you, because Stanislav Petrov. He died a few years ago, but thank you. Yeah, and it was it, it was only because you know he had the ability the presence, to the to smartness. think for himself. Yeah, the the presence of mind. Okay, well, what it is, is you can see the same phenomenon in the U.S. Um, So, um, okay, well, um, Hillary Clinton, for example, is so sure that it was Putin and not herself that caused Trump. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, With Obama, they came up with the birther thing, how there's like a secret African conspiracy. Because um, basically, if you are an elite, the only way you can just you've been fed so much propaganda and all that propaganda justifies the way the world is where you think that you are better than these peasants who can neither read or write. So basically they are projecting their biases upon these peasants. So yes. Um, no. And what you realize is that these peasants who can neither read or write are a hundred times smarter than any of the czar's kids who went to even like the best Ivy leagues because they had to be. <laughs> well, uh, this is this is what uh, this is the kind of education that I feel like we used to have in the United States uh, uh, before things yeah. went completely off <laughs> the rails. And you, you know, you used to be able to go to school. Uh, at at land grant schools for you know True. next to nothing, and you know education was available to everybody. And now, it's it it's getting back to the point where it's education is only available to the rich. Yep, and it's going to get worse because um, we've been through this path. Of, and this is what's really creepy is that when you read Lenin, like how many we literally had to change Borba to the Washington Post for or did you use Washington Post or the Economist? I forgot. What was the analogy we used? It was the Washington Post, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, literally, we had to change uh, the name of the newspaper that Lenin was trolling in order to be relevant. I mean, that's how little, like, that's how systemic, like, that's how economics work, systems work, in that it's done on a global scale. So, um so it's universe you'll see that a lot of so um yeah and so basically it'll all even like mark predicted it lenin has everyone after lenin has too but basically what's going to happen is that it's called the contradiction of capitalism where you're trying where basically uh you you've seen this um 
Marx predicted this, where like you get all the businesses to like collapse into one business and the super monster eats it all up uh, like Amazon. Right. Right. Monopolies. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens is that if you let these cycles go on for like 50, 100, 200 years, you're going to have uh, more wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And it's going to be more and more tilted so that if you don't have wealth, it will be harder to join that club and everything will be cut off from you. Uh, that's just the way it happens because that's just the way money, like uh, math works, right? Right. Um, I'm going to uh, do a counter education and really educate you about all these victims of communism on my blog. Let me uh, give a shout out. Uh, historically uh, is is the name of your blog and your podcast mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so much more that you do your Twitter. You have a, a historically Twitter. So uh, give everyone the information on that so that they can find oh, this great resource. Oh, we just bought our domain name, historically.net. Fabulous. I will I will put that that link down in the um show notes. Yeah. And um we uh we will be doing an episode about the more horrific victims of communism memorial in Canada. Uh and you'll learn about people you wish you will learn about the worst scum of the earth that you wish did not exist in. All right. Thank you, Isha. Krishna Swarmi, there are links in the show notes to Historically uh, and all of the podcasts and blogs, etc. that you need to subscribe to. Wonderful Substack as well. Uh, can't thank you enough, Isha, for stopping by. I want to just close this off with a, a little bit more information on the victims of communism it's a victims of communism memorial foundation formed in 1983 by zbigniew brzezinski uh lev lee edwards uh they are they intersect with the world anti-communist league that is somebody that you that is a a group that you want to be uh aware of um this was essentially established. It's essentially a, a, a branch of U.S. government in a way. Uh, it, it has a purpose of educating Americans about the ideology, blah blah blah, of communism. But here's the thing: uh, membership in VOC has a significant overlap with U.S. intelligence services. Since the beginning of the Cold War, some of the CIA's closest partners were Eastern European anti-communist exile groups. These are the extreme Nazis that we were just talking about, and especially these uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, figures. And uh, you know, as that conflict starts heating up in um in ukraine you know we're, we're also starting to see more of this activity over in the united states i find that very uh alarming but also there is conflict that people are trying to uh, get started between the United States and China. And one of these victims of communist people, uh, Adrian Zenz, is a, a, a complete wacko, a complete flake, and has been 
elevated to the level of a, a respectable uh, commentator on cable news. Anytime you see Adrian Zenz anywhere talking about China, run away. You know that 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 it is not a serious news piece because that person is nothing but a propagandist. Mission in life is to get the United States into a war with China, and you know, make, make, if that's your thing, that's your thing. But uh, I believe that is not in our country's interest or in the world's interest right now at this point. Also important to know for all those Dems, you know, not not a single one voted against it. Uh, the, these bills passed with zero nays, so every single. Democrat in the Florida legislature is culpable here. Um, this is completely Coke money. This is Coke family sponsored crap that that you just uh, got put into law in the United in, in in Florida. So congratulations to the Florida Democratic Party. For- All right, we are going to be right back with Janine Moloff and the. All right, we have Janine Moloff here to talk about that big bipartisan infrastructure bill that actually looks like a giant privatization scheme. Okay, well, that's exactly what it is. Apparently, about a week ago, a week and a half ago, there was some leaked information that um, Common Dreams got a hold of, as well as some others, Food and Water Watch, and another public group called uh, uh, In the Public Interest. And it was a fact sheet from the bipartisan committee working on the infrastructure bill, uh, otherwise known as the Gang of 21. And it's based on this leaked fact sheet that there were a couple of news media outlets that were able to figure out what was really going on. Okay, and it didn't take much either. But keep in mind, this, none of this was mentioned by CNN or CBS or any of the others. They're all talking about the horse race instead of really looking out for the public interest. So earlier in the week, the mainstream read corporate media reported that a deal had been reached between alleged corporate Democrats and alleged moderate Republicans. Biden announced he's on board. Bernie Sanders, big progressives on the political left, just get on board. It's a baby deal, except what you can, because we're going to have a bigger deal further down the road. Well, we've seen this strategy play out before. All right, go along with what the DNC corporate DNC wants us to do, and later on, kitties, you'll get a treat. Don't believe it. It's a scam. In fact, the deal brokered in secret committee by this bipartisan group is little more than a deal that a similar deal that was passed in Australia in 2014, crashed and burned, by the way, in 2016, but this deal was also admired by, guess who, Donald Trump in 2017. Now, it turns out in 2017, when Trump tried to push something similar, we're going to discuss the details in a few minutes, um, the Democrats voted against it. Now those same Democrats are remaining silent. So why would Donald Trump like this deal? Well, you can bet it has something to do with ripping off the public for the billionaire, the pub billionaire class, for the benefit of the billionaire class. This infrastructure infrastructure deal is all about privatizing public resources with a secondary financing scheme and 
that deals with two things, basically, public-private partnerships, otherwise known as P3s, and the more toxic detail, asset recycling. So again, all this information is based on a fact sheet that leaked out from the committee, allegedly by one of the committee members, though that has not been verified. So there were 21 senators that brokered this deal. It was co-chaired by Kirsten Cinema for the Democrats and Rob Portman for the Republicans. The other people involved in this in this deal are Chris Coon for the Democrats, Chris Coons, Delaware, Maggie Hassan, New Hampshire, John Hickenlooper, Colorado, Mark Kelly, Arizona, Joe Manchin, of course, West Virginia, Gene Shaheen, New Hampshire, Kirsten Cinema again, co-chaired, Arizona, John Tester, Montana, Mark Warner, Virginia, and Angus King, who's an independent, but caucuses with the Dems, was also on the committee and favors the deal. On the GOP side, of course, you have Rob Portman co-chairing, along with Kirsten Cinema. You have Richard Byrd, North Carolina, Bill Cassidy, Louisiana, Susan Collins, Maine, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, Jerry Moran, Kansas, Lisa Murkowski, Alaska, Mitt Romney, Utah, Mike Brown, South Dakota, Tom Tillis, North Carolina, and Todd Young of Indiana. And we're going to see, basically, that it's the funding issue, uh, the parameters of how they plan to fund this infrastructure investment. That's what makes this a dirty skunk of a deal. That's what makes it a scam. So it was reported by CNN this past Wednesday by Lauren Fox, Manu Raju, Ted Barrett, and Jessica Dean that, you know, this is a make-or-break moment. And like most mainstream media, they covered the horse race, whether it was a political win for Biden, political loss for the Republicans, so on and so forth. What they didn't cover was the funding source, which basically is privatization, no questions were asked. And again, it's this type of really, it's, I wouldn't even call it journalism, I call it stenography. You know, basically, they're acting as a public resource uh, venue for the politicians. And it's inexcusable. And it's really about the pay force. Okay? So we're going to move on ahead here. And I first saw this, actually, in Common Dreams, in an article written by Jake Johnson. Okay? And this was the 18th. So it was early in the week. And the article reads, quote, critics warned bipartisan infrastructure plan would facilitate a Wall Street takeover. This deal is a disaster in the making and it must be rejected. Okay. So Johnson gets into the fact that this committee, first of all, refused to touch the GOP tax cuts for the wealthy and for corporate entities that would uh, push through in 2017 by Trump. So this bipartisan group of 21 senators proposed basically a couple of different funding mechanisms that are called alternative infrastructure funding mechanisms. But most of us that have any common sense know this is a not so thinly veiled scam to privatize our, our public resources. That means roads, bridges, and water systems. Okay. Uh, Mary Grant a spokesperson from Food and Water Watch commented, she was quoted as saying, quote, communities across the country have been ripped off by public-private schemes that enrich corporations and Wall Street investors, end quote. So 
basically it was this, there was this two page memo that leaked out from the infrastructure, from the infrastructural committee. And it listed actually three ways to fund the infrastructure bill. Obviously it won't be through taxes or tax cuts, tax, I'm sorry, it won't be from raising taxes. All right, not on the rich anyway. Keep in mind, what is supposed to pay for infrastructure? Our tax base, but that escapes all these so-called brainy people. So there's three mechanisms they're proposing to use. One is, again, the P3, public-private partnerships. Number two is private activity bonds. And number three, which is the worst one of them all, asset recycling. And that's the way they would plan on financing this package of $579 billion in new spending over five years. Okay. So public-private partnerships, it, it sounds like it's an unequal partnership. It's because it is. I mean, think about this one really hard. You can, you can have corporate lawyers put this in any kind of jaded language they like, but ask yourself one common sense question. Since politicians from both parties receive massive infusions of campaign cash from the same corporations that want to buy into this, which entity do you think is going to have greater power in a public-private partnership? It's going to be the private enterprise, of course. We know this because basically the politicians serve their donors, the donor class. So asset recycling is this new thing, and basically it means that you would lease off or sell off things in your infrastructure, whether it's roads, bridges, maybe the waterworks, whatever, and you would lease it for maybe 75 or 99 years or you'd just sell it and to private corporations. And then what you would do is you, the money you get from that sale of public resources, you would use that, that money to fund other infrastructure projects. Now, if this sounds a lot like basically selling your home in a fire sale way too in, with way too low a price and then using the proceeds, to buy a sports car, well, that's a pretty good analogy right there. That's how bad asset recycling is. Now, it was used in Australia, and they started it in 2014, and it crashed and burned in 2016. There are some examples here in the United States that Johnson quoted. Uh, one is in Chicago. There were privatization of Chicago's parking meters, and this was in the asset recycling. Uh, Chicago signed a 75-year public-private partnership with a consortium of companies that would operate the city's parking meters. Now, the city of Chicago received $1.15 billion for the deal. Keep in mind, though, this is a 75-year deal. Even when you just index for very slight inflation, at the end of that deal, that $1.15 billion is, is going to be the equivalent of pennies. But meanwhile, this private consortium of corporate entities can jack up the price, and the public has no right to even squeak about it because basically you sold it, period. Chicago drivers, according to this deal, will wind up paying the consortium a minimum of $11.6 billion to park at these meters over the 75 years. 
Okay, sounds like a bad deal to me. Uh, the con- th- this also required that Chicago had to raise parking meter fees from a low of 200% to 800%, depending on the area of the city. Okay, and at one point, there's a part of the city where if you need to feed the parking meter for two hours, that will cost you seven bucks. Not 75 cents, seven bucks. So Mary Grant of the advocacy group Food and Water Watch was quoted some more. She warned that this plan would, quote, pile further burdens on communities struggling to recover from the COVID pandemic. She went on to say, quote, it provides privatization and so-called public-private partnerships instead of making public investments in publicly owned infrastructure. This package does not provide adequate funding to rebuild and repair our country's infrastructure. It is nothing more than an outrageously expensive way to borrow funds with the ultimate bill paid back by households and local businesses in the form of higher rates. She went on to say, quote, communities across the country have been ripped off by public-private schemes that enrich corporations and Wall Street investors. This deal is a disaster in the making, and it must be rejected. Brianna Eckel, who was an organizer with the same group with Food and Water Watch, also cautioned that (laughs) this proposal would, quote, facilitate a Wall Street takeover of public services like water, which will lead to higher rates, worse service, and job cuts. Especially with water, you know, on on the Environmental Justice Report, my other show, we talked about uh, the vile, the, the poor condition of many of our water works and how private companies basically um, aren't being held accountable to do the proper maintenance, all right? Food and Water Watch also estimated in a March report that basically this plan would charge households some 59% more than local governments, for instance, for drinking water. So, you know, this is what's going on here. Uh, Even Morris Pearl who is the chair of a group called Patriotic Millionaires, as you can imagine. He said this week that, quote, by um, that any changes to, basically, that by deeming any changes to the 2017 GOP tax law off limits, the bipartisan group is showing that it's, quote, more interested in having less infrastructure investment in order to justify keeping in place the rigged tax code that favors corporations and the rich rather than actually coming up with a plan to solve the enormous challenges that our country faces. If the choice is between a good deal and a bipartisan deal, Democratic senators must choose the good deal, said Pearl. He went on to say, quote, they must prioritize doing what the American people are asking for, which is to raise taxes on the rich and corporations. Um, Two-thirds of voters support raising taxes on corporations to pay for President Biden's infrastructure investment, end quote. Uh, keep in mind, this deal was brokered behind closed doors, which is never a good sign. This is not national security necessarily. David Dayan wrote a piece um, this week also, and in it he said pretty much the same thing, that this is a stalking horse for privatization, which it is. And, you know, he goes on to explain how the only details we have are this fact sheet, um, but this fact sheet lists basically 11 alternatives to pay for this infrastructure bill uh, so that they don't raise, they don't raise taxes on the rich or on corporate corporate entities. And they keep those tax breaks from Trump uh, intact. So 
basically, let me uh, just lost my place here. I'm sorry. So the fact sheet lists 11 alternatives. One of them is to reduce the IRS tax gap. One of the things they list is that they think the IRS should crack down on people that haven't paid their full share of taxes. But keep in mind, when you say that the rich are off limits, that means that they're going to be pressuring people that are already poor, maybe homeless, to pay more in taxes when they don't have it. This is what it is. Um, so basically, some of the things that Gay Dan was talking about, um, there was one which talked about pay, uh, excuse me, there was one about paying for infrastructure with what they call direct pay municipal bonds and another thing called an infrastructure financing authority, which Dan just outed as basically, you know, other ways to borrow from private enterprise. Again, once you go, once you bring in private enterprise, they are not held to the same levels of accountability. The rights that you have with a public entity very rapidly disappear with private enterprise. But Diane really focused on the idea of um, asset recycling. And he said, here's the proof of the duplicity. Um, to quote, he said, quote, public-private partnerships, private activity bonds, and asset recycling. Um, these are the scary parts of the bill. Um, and that he basically said what I said before. This would basically be selling off public resources in kind of a panicked fire sale to private financiers. That's it. Um, and once you do that, you really don't have any rights. Now, there is this false argument as well about private enterprise being more efficient, which is nonsense. And Diane points out, um, the government doesn't require a 10% margin on equity tax credits or interest payments. Um, but the, when we're talking about private enterprise, that's why it's not as efficient. Private enterprise has a layer of profit that built, gets built into the expenditure. So private enterprise is always going to be more expensive. Um, and there's only two ways for companies to reduce ownership and operation costs below what the public sector would spend while still being somewhat profitable. And the two are either one, cut back on safety, labor, and maintenance, and or extract, if you will, profit from users of the infrastructure like toll roads. You know, and there's a lot of middle-class people that go, oh, so you just have your money ready for the toll roads. Toll roads mean that people that are minimum wage workers may not be able to travel on those roads. That toll is something that's unaffordable to low-income people, and it is discriminatory because of that. Um, Dan talks about private activity bonds. He calls them a softer version of tax-exempt bonds. <clears throat> and he also points out that these public-private partnerships, they're just a euphemism for privatization. All right? And then he calls out asset recycling as the ultimate shell game. Those of you who aren't familiar, the shell game, you see somebody, and they've got these three little uh, walnut shells or whatever, and there's a P they put under one of them. And the idea is they move them around, you have to figure out or guess where the P is. And you always lose because the person running the game has already palmed and pocketed the P. So no matter what you choose, you're screwed. And that's what they're calling the asset recycle, recycling because it's basically robbing Peter to pay Paul. And it sounds like I'm repeating myself. 
It's because what these corporate attorneys and these and these uh, politicians have done, they've used a lot of jargon, a lot of professional language to masquerade the fact that this is just a low-life scam. That's it. You're, the idea is they're going to be selling our public resources, which belong to all of us, roads, bridges built with public money, the plumbing in public schools, let's say, our waterworks, our power grid, our communications grid, the internet was developed on the public dime. All that would be vulnerable because once you share that power with a private corporation, all those mechanisms for reasonable accountability fly out the window because all it takes is corporate lawyers to scream, no, we don't have to follow those rules because that's an illegal taking of our, our future profit. And the fact is, they usually win in court. And if they don't win, they keep the court cases going for so long that the public loses anyway. All right? The, the fact is, private enterprise does not have to provide any amount of accountability or uh, transparency, but public does. And again, they are selling, they're proposing selling these public resources at bargain basement prices. All right? You saw what happened in Chicago. Now, this is based on a model that uh, took place in Australia, and it was imported from Australia. And according to Dayen, you know, quote, let's call attention to the third item, asset recycling. Um, and he calls it an enormous shell game. It involves selling off public infrastructure to acquire the resources to build new infrastructure. It's literally robbing Peter to pay Paul, end quote. Okay? And he noted that asset recycling didn't work in Australia either. One of the deals that people had a problem with, and it's really kind of scary, is in the Northern Territory in Australia, uh, these people used asset recycling and they leased well, they sold, actually, the Darwin port to a Chinese firm for 99 years. And this Chinese firm did not have any other infrastructure. Neither group, neither the government nor the Chinese firm had any other infrastructure project ready. Okay, these are fire sales. In other words, they underpriced the assets. And that is documented by newmatilda.com um, in a piece titled Six Impossible Things About Privatization. When you underprice your assets, that's dishonest, okay? The government's supposed to represent us, and I, I can hear the laughing already, but they have a responsibility to price assets at a reasonable level. So they don't. They underprice the assets, and then these corporations make out like bandits, all right? They, they get to buy public resources up or lease them for next to nothing. The local municipality or the state level uh, of government, they get a chunk of change to spend on other things, but once that piece of money is gone, they no longer have the rights to that public resource. Now they have to go begging to that same private corporation they sold it to, and the price is jacked up beyond belief. All right, keep in mind, our politicians are supposed to be working for us. Again, I know I can hear the laughter. And they're supposed to be held accountable. And basically, this would be akin to trusting your brother-in-law to sell your house. You know your house is worth, let's say, half a million dollars. 
but he has a friend that says, look, if you sell me that house, it's worth half a million dollars for 50,000. I'll give you 10,000 back. That's what this does. That's what public private partnerships do. And that's what asset recycling does. Somebody gets a chunk of change, but at the end of the day, it is the public that gets ripped off majorly. So keep in mind, this program, asset recycling and everything, this was something that Trump admired. In 2017, um, there was an article run by the Washington Post, written by Michael Larris, and Trump's uh, plan in 2017 was based on this Australian plan. He wanted to sell off public properties, um, and it, it's almost identical to what they want to do now. Okay, there's no accountability measures, and you know, once again, Trump wanted to entice state and local governments to sell assets um, by paying them a bonus. Now, the proceeds of the sales that they sell the assets to would go to the other infrastructure process projects. In other words, basically, you're selling your home to pay for your car. And as crazy as that sounds, that's what we're talking about, about asset recycling. Asset recycling is just another scam that gets you to basically sell something that has a lot of worth and basically sell it wildly underpriced for basically a cash deal. Okay? It's a vulture move. That's all it is. You sell a private lease or sell a, a public resource at a price that is drastically way below its actual value in exchange for cash. That's it. That is essentially a ripoff. There's no guesswork here. You can give it all the jargon names you want, but that's what it was. And Australia, they wanted the same thing, and Trump wanted it as well. But in 2017, the Democrats basically voted against it. Now those same Democrats are silent. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with right now. And part of what they wanted to sell off, major power facilities. I guess the example I want to give you is Texas. Look at the blackouts in Texas in the dead of winter because the private entities did not maintain the equipment. Subsequently, people went without power for weeks. And then when the power went back on, their bills were astronomical because once again, it was um, a really speculative way of billing. If we allow this infrastructure bill to go through as this, comp, this bipartisan committee proposes with public-private partnerships and asset recycling, be prepared to have the Texas blackout experience all over the country eventually because that's exactly what happened in Texas because once it goes to private enterprise, they're not going to do all the maintenance necessarily because it's just, it does, cuts down on profit. So the Texas experience will repeat. And, you know, again, this is, this is what happened, all right? Um, when the Northern Territory government leased the port of Darwin to a Chinese-owned firm for 99 years, it sparked a debate over national security. 
and not meaning this, and I don't think this is just xenophobia speaking. I think it's legitimate because when you're talking about Chinese business practices, you can't separate corporate entities that operate in China from the Chinese government. They, they have a very um, intertwined relationship. Okay. And then we have another piece from The Guardian about asset recycling in Australia. Uh, and this was written four years ago by John Quiggin. Um, you know, again, it's a failed model. I'm just going to call it what it is, a Wall Street scam. And, you know, again, it worked. They did it in Australia first. And this is how the Trump administration wanted to use asset recycling to fund uh, infrastructure investments that Trump wanted. Okay, um, you know, once again, according to this article, the trap inherent in asset recycling, our casino capitalism is handing the keys to the public coffers to private enterprise. Okay, so it says all the same stuff. There's nothing new here. So there is another group called In the Public Interest, and they are a really good um I guess we call it think tank. They're, they call themselves a research and policy center, uh, and they're committed to promoting the common good and democratic control of public goods and services. This is straight from their website. We help citizens, public officials, advocacy groups, and researchers better understand the impact of government contracts and public-private agreements have on service quality, democratic decision-making, and public budgets. Keep in mind, if it goes public-private, private has more power, and any sort of democratic rules aren't going to be followed. They're going to call this out as private property because you sold it. So this group also said that the same asset recycling that the bipartisan committee wants to inflict on us is a scam with zero. branded with a new name. You sell off existing public infrastructure to pay for new infrastructure. And if that sounds unwise, it's because it is. Australia, these asset recycling schemes uh, really were just expensive loans with long-term concession contracts with a lot of problem features. So you're taking out a long-term loan. It's almost like government's taking out, they're not calling it up, it's almost like they're taking out a a payday loan with astronomical repayment schedules. It's that bad. So, you know, basically they also cite the city of Chicago, the parking meters, which is, again, parking meters aren't as important to some people as others, but they're using this example. But when what happens when, say, your water bill jumps a 1,000% and you can't afford water? So parking rates in some parts of the city under this privatization scheme um, jumped to $7 for two hours of parking in some parts of the city. Um, and the city also has to pay this consortium, okay, that they're involved with, $31 million due to the contract provisions. So there's other hidden costs in there. In the, in the public interest also explains how asset recycling really encourages what they call flawed decision-making, and it really has distorted incentives. And basically, 
Gary Cohn, who is director of Trump's National Economic Council, and he was also former president of Goldman Sachs, explained, quote, the bigger the thing you privatize, the more money we'll give you. Okay. And so basically, based on the Australian plans, we're kind of going back and forth here, the asset recycling program in Australia that Trump wanted to um, reproduce here did offer a 15% federal subsidy for states and territories that sold existing public assets. But once again, the decision to sell would be heavily influenced by this 15%, let's call it is, grant payment, okay? Uh, in 2015, again, they talked about the Darwin Port, um, the Northern Territory government, uh, used asset recycling to lease the Darwin port to a Chinese company, which again, compromised their national security. They didn't know where the money would go either. It wasn't part of the deal. And instead of really pushing a real analysis of whether or not privatization would be in the public's interest, they just saw the subsidy and they wanted, they went for the money, the short term, you know, which is really stupid. And, Asset recycling, because of this, really does long-term damage to the public balance sheet. So this has been called out in several different ways. So what can you do about it? All right. Well, there are some things you can do about it, actually. <clears throat> Right-wing watch. Excuse me. Right-wing watch came up with some suggestions. If we're faced with um, the federal government taking up this bipartisan infrastructure plan, which really would encourage public-private partnerships and asset, in other words, privatization of our public resources, the way it would work, not just at the federal level, but then they would go to states and local municipalities and they'd say, look, we'll give you this money, this cash on the barrel if you sell us this, this resource, you know, yeah, it'll be, you know, it'll be undervalued, but you'll get the money right now. And then the people that are organizing those deals get a bonus. So what can you do to protect your own community? There are some things. Right Wing Watch made some suggestions. Here are some questions you can ask about privatization proposals. One, does the contract, the proposed contract for privatization, whether it's your waterworks, a local bridge, a local road, whatever it is, does the proposed, because this, this particular scheme comes down from the feds, but then the feds are going to offer some sort of incentive payment to your local government and your state government to privatize local and state assets. So let's look at these contracts. Does the contract limit our democratic rights? Sounds reasonable. But a lot of these contracts, um, there are the so-called non-compete clauses and compensation clauses. And what these do is they limit or eliminate the public's ability for decades, plural, to make public decisions to improve our cities or any other public assets that are involved in this deal. So basically what they say is, quote, sell off the highways, and the contract could prevent the building of mass transit that could compete with the private operator decades, end quote. So these non-compete clauses and compensation clauses 
once you privatize, it limits your democratic rights because if they think, the corporation thinks that you building something that would be, benefit the community might cut into their profits, that, that restriction is already written into the contract. So does the contract limit our democratic rights? Number two, will we still have the right to know? Good question. The fact is this, when private corporations take over, yeah, you lose that right to know. You privatize the health department, the schools, whatever, you lose that right to know, period. Number three, are there perverse incentives that could work against public policy goals? <clears throat> Keep in mind, private companies, are they focus on profit and increasing their market share. Return on investment is their entire reason for being. And <clears throat> that's okay if all you're doing is providing breakfast cereal or, you know, some hair products. But it becomes very concerning when it deals with prisons, when it deals with the waterworks, the power grid. Again, look what happened in Texas. There were perverse incentives. There were economic, economic incentives to not do the necessary maintenance, and it caused the entire system to collapse and people in the dead of winter without power. This is something you have to consider. Number four, how will the contractor, how will we hold the contractors, the private corporations accountable? Okay, you can't. Once you privatize, it becomes a totally different legal class. It's very difficult to hold private corporations as accountable as you could when resources remain public, okay? Number five, do you have a plan B? If the contractor, the corporation in the privatization scam fails to deliver, okay, and you paid up the money, do you have a right to cancel the contract? It's a good question, we don't know. Number six, will all the outsourced jobs previously been done by public employees, um, will all the outsourced jobs have healthcare benefits? Well, most of the privatization uh, opponents basically, um, I'm sorry, let me, restrict, let me rephrase that. The private people pushing privatization, one of the promises they make in cost savings is that um, you don't have to provide health care. Number seven, if a private company thinks it can make money owning our parking lots, why can't we? Makes sense, right? Well, you know what? That happened in California. Former Governor Schwarzenegger had an idea to sell and lease back state buildings that were free of debt. And local governments are selling landfills and privatizing recycling programs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I suspect that what would happen is those private corporations would attack that because it would be part of their no-compete clause. You know, keep in mind that no-compete clause, what it means, you know, there even, um, even sandwich shop employees have no-compete clauses. So if you quit a job and say you work for Subway and there's no-compete clause, that means you can't get another minimum wage job in that industry for the time period that no-compete clause exists, which is absurd. 
It makes you a slave to your boss. Okay. Number eight, what are the limits on private contractors? What are the limits on their ability to raise fees, tolls, or rates? Well, I don't think there are any. Once it's sold, it's sold. They can jack it up as much as they want to. And again, we saw that in Texas. All right, when the power went back on, because people took the more speculative billing option, which was still illegitimate, they wound up with $10,000 bills for no service. Then there's length of contract, 50 years, 75 years. Again, when you have long-term contracts that old, you're basically just screwed for the time period of that contract. It's very unwise. And number 10, if you read the contract, devil's in the details. <clears throat> basically, and it's harder to hold these corporations accountable. And that's because last May, there was a decision by the Supreme Court, and the decision was written by Clarence Thomas, and the Supreme Court basically, quote, weakened the government's ability to recoup money from contractors defrauding the government. And that was from the Project on Government Oversight. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, this was one last May, a couple of years ago, actually, um, said the decision, quote, severely limits whistleblowers' ability to substantiate their allegations before commencing suit. So basically what we have here from a couple of years ago, anyway, is the idea that the Supreme Court made it more difficult for public entities that have been defrauded by contractors to hold them accountable. Another reason not to privatize. Okay. Um, and this is this is really predatory privatization. Now, there are some things that they still go with that way with privatization, some things you have to consider. There has to be a clear process for investors, other stakeholders, and the public alike. You have to have transparency that the anticipated effects for user fees and workers at these assets. You have to ensure plans for maintenance and operation. You have to create rules including a rule that if the, if the corporation, the private entity goes bankrupt, that the um, asset goes back, reverts back to public control. That's not written to any of these privatization contracts, by the way. At least not that I know. You have to eliminate conflicts of interest. You have to assess whether this transaction creates better public and financial benefit than one that would use public financing. And nine times out of ten, public financing is just like public health, it's always going to be uh, more affordable and you're going to have more accountability. You know, when you go with private financing, you go with Wall Street, you're gambling, casino capitalism. So that's what's happening with all this. Now, we have, we have this deal in front of us, okay? And then we have additionally... This idea, forget the fact that there's been no transparency regarding the details of this deal. This fact sheet leaked out, okay? There's no details on the proposed privatization of public assets, including assets as important as our water supply and our power grid and our communications grid. There's no details on this asset recycling scam, 
Okay, again, this deal happened behind closed doors. Now, if it were legitimate, they wouldn't have had to meet in secret. Where's the mainstream media on these points? Nowhere. Why has the public been kept in the dark regarding the details of any future payment for this infrastructure plan? This bipartisan infrastructure proposal by this bipartisan committee, in conclusion, is a scam. It allows privatization of public resources at bargain basement prices, while the very rich are let off the hook in terms of paying their fair share in taxes. Now, the true irony is the fact that the very technically legal tax evasion used by the rich, engineered by both political parties, is what caused the problem in the first place. We wouldn't have a problem funding infrastructure if the very rich and corporations paid their fair proportional share in taxes. The tax base is what provides for infrastructure. It's that simple, people. Why should we subsidize the likes of Jeff Bezos and additionally relinquish public resources again, such as our water system, to private corporations who aren't required to provide any reasonable measure of accountability or transparency? Furthermore, those same private entities insert into those public-private agreements non-compete clauses, okay? Non-compete clauses that basically make sure that for almost a century, you can't do anything to mitigate the damage done by the agreement. You can't come up with a better solution because it might cut into their profits. That's another part of the scam. Look. We're talking about public assets, the waterworks, the communication, all of this. Public resources belong to all of us. They're set aside for future generations to be available to all, regardless of your economic status. Public resources like our water supply, power grid must be off limits to any private groups, corporations, banks, etc. And I will maintain no U.S. Congress, no U.S. trade rep, no court, and no president, no governor has the right to sign away our children's futures in what can only be called a bargain basement fire sale where our public resources are drastically undervalued and are acquired literally at a steal. You know, think of it this way. Not only do the rich get, a, get to essentially steal our public resources in this scam, but they continue to evade paying their fair share in taxes. Again, keep in mind, had the rich, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, et cetera, been forced to pay their fair share in taxes, both on earned income, unearned income, and estates, to the previous historic levels of 90% that existed during the Great Expansion, which created the middle class, or that billionaire class, there'd be no need to mortgage our public resources and with it mortgage our kids' and grandkids' futures. This bipartisan group of sellout vultures, shoot, they privatize the very air we breathe if they thought they could get away with it. No, no more air for Janine. She used up her quota. Look, the consideration that's been omitted from this bipartisan discussion slash scheme slash scam is the proper role of public representatives 
The public interest is paramount and should come before any political win, financially or politically. And now we come back to one of the primary instigators, Kirsten Cinema. Cinema loves to pontificate on the premise of a principled stance, but it looks like her only principle seems to revolve on this non-issue of bipartisanship. I harp on cinema along with Joe Manchin, especially cinema, because her hypocrisy apparently knows no boundaries. I challenge cinema and the others to consider that when people are starving because of the pandemic, because they've lost their business, because they've lost their jobs, they don't care about bipartisanship. Cinema stance along with the entire blue dog delegation, new Democrats, third way, whatever you want to call them, they all represent the height of ultimate privilege. They represent the height, the height of wealth privilege to the same degree as their GOP counterparts. Those of us in the great unwashed masses are further insulted by the fact that this plan is one admired by that fascist Donald Trump as documented by the Washington Post in 2017. Why are alleged Democrats pushing a plan favored by this criminal, by this Nazi? Now back to Senator Sinema. Frankly, I'm getting tired of her as well, but, but I'd urge her to reassess her dubious principles and obey the law in the Constitution, which clearly mandates that public representatives actually represent us and not merely the 1%. In conclusion, this bipartisan deal is a scam. Every member of the committee must be criminally investigated to determine if there are any conflicts of interest with criminal prosecutions following and no, their qualified immunity in Congress does not protect them from criminal wrongdoing. Furthermore, a personal note to Senator Sinema, I'm following her principle of bipartisanship as I include and blame both Democrats, blue dog Democrats and Republicans in this recommendation. And one last thing, if the vice president would do her damn job and as presiding officer of the Senate, declare the silent filibuster to be unconstitutional, which it is, it basically deprives us of equal representation, then we wouldn't have to deal as much with these Republicans or with Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema. All of this can be fixed, but it starts with ending with the filibuster and that means that the Vice President Kamala Harris, as presiding officer of the Senate, must declare the silent filibuster as unconstitutional because it denies equal representation. And then we get rid of that supermajority, and now we can get things done. And we sure as hell aren't going to sell off our public resources in a fire sale that drastically undervalues them and rips all of us off for generations. And that's my report. Thank you for that, Janine. Uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, thank you for listening, as always. And we will see you again next week.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.